now. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. And we need him now. For some reason, the cool bars in Hollywood have to be hard to find and have to have no sign. This is the Cocktail Nation. This week on the show, Words with Wellesy, Gary Wells back with something very interesting all about Southern California in the 60s. And something interesting that I found out that might shock you when it comes to the dreaded wartime draft. We've got Lounge Live magazine, a deep thought coming your way. And of course, plenty of new music like Stereophonic Space Sound Unlimited right now and Return to Marrakech on the Cocktail Nation.
This is the Cocktail Nation.
Gokta Nation, the millionaire, Fraulein Doctor. New music to the Gokta Nation. Now, my anatomy of a lounge Lothario. It is in your podcast inbox each and every week. The new series is fictional lounge Lotharios. And I'm always looking for your suggestions. You can email thecoctonation at gmail.com. This week, the great Don Juan. Cocktail Nation. Words with Dwellze. You're a librarian, Mr. Wordsworth. You're a dealer in books and two-cent fines and pamphlets and closed stacks and the musty insides of a language factory. Words, Mr. Wordsworth. We need to warn people. The impossible hope that runs through this story like a river, bending, swerving, and nearly reversing itself over the course of five generations, is that California could eventually expand to become more than a mere destination, that the land of sun would finally fulfill its unreal promise as improvisation rewarded. Hey gang, I'm Gary Wells from SoulRideBlog.com, and I'm here with this month's book recommendation for the Cocktail Nation. This time we're looking at The Nearest Faraway Place, Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and The Southern California Experience by Timothy White from 1994. Always a Beach Boy fan, I bought a new Brian Wilson CD in 1996. Part of the album jacket showed a picture of a farmer's field from the early 1900s. Curious why such a pick would be in this particular album, I looked up its source. What I found was the stunning book we're looking at today. The Nearest Faraway Place was written by the late Timothy White, who for years had been a senior editor at Rolling Stone and editor-in-chief at Billboard. What his intention was with The Nearest Faraway Place was to discourse on the complete spectrum of the American dream as it related to westward migration in the early days of the 20th century. He successfully attempts to analyze the Golden State as the land of promise and to see it through the lens of the Wilson clan. The scope of the research he did for this book is nothing short of staggering. It may only take up the first 60-odd pages, but White begins his book with a detailed family history of the Wilsons, their beginnings in Kansas, and the discontent and family troubles that led to a move to California. The author uses the grandparents of Brian, Dennis, and Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys, Buddy, Edith, and their children, as examples of pioneer types moving across country to a land of opportunity. Significantly for those who know something of the Wilson family story, Buddy Wilson is painted as extremely remote and as having no genuine intimacy with another human being. Buddy and Edith's children then, White relates, are doomed to inherit this legacy of pain. It is reported that Buddy savagely beat his kids, and therefore the die is cast for his son, Murray Wilson, father of the three Beach Boys. Murray is described as the family's desperate hope, as he is not only industrious, but creative. He meets and marries Audrey Korthoff, and they have three children who will be the instruments of Murray's ambition. They are his captive resource. The wonderful thing about this book on the Beach Boys, though, is that it doesn't concern itself only with the band's story, as I've already made clear. Along the way, Timothy White touches on the many, many things that emerged during this era that helped make Southern California a singularly enchanting locality. Some, but not all of the things he mentions that may be peripheral to the boys' story, but that still are part of their orbit, include the bungalow, hot rods, Disneyland, 
LA radio station KFWB, Go-Karts, Stereo Hi-Fi, Phil Spector, Garages, Jan and Dean and Liberty Records, Dick Dale, Surf Music, and Leo Fender. The author takes appropriate time to describe the nascent surfing scene on the West Coast and details players like John Severson and the rise of his Surfer magazine. Additionally, White shares stories of Capitol Records and their studios, Gidget, Rat Fink, Skateboarding, Lysergic Acid, Citrus Fruit, Architecture, Beach Party Movies, Automobiles, The Barbie Doll, Plants Native to California, Car Clubs, West Coast Jazz, California Orange Box labels, and even compact discs. White aptly describes all these things and people, from Buddy Wilson to Herb Alpert, as a great lattice work. Proof of White's research can be seen in his bibliography, which is 15 pages long. So, White uses the Wilson family and the Beach Boys as his core story, but also relates many things peripheral, which is a means to fully describe the miasma of Southern California at this time, how all these things gelled. I was particularly struck by White's description of the early days of pop record making on the West Coast. It was Phil Spector and his colleagues that proved that hits need not come from the Brill Building in New York or other music factories. They could be made in garages with just family on hand. The Beach Boys' ascent is described ably by White, and he tells how problems soon arose between the group and their father and uncle, Murray Wilson, then acting as their manager. In light of Murray's volatility, the reader has no choice but to recall what he has learned about the cold brutality of Murray's father to see how this behavior is generational. Timothy White's years as a rock critic are on display in his descriptions of the music scene of the 1960s. He charts the relationship between the Beach Boys, the Beatles, and the Birds that started with Rubber Soul. In fact, White's description of the music of the second half of the 60s serves as a roadmap directing the reader through a pivotal time. He still takes time to describe societal changes occurring concurrently that were curtailing the fun, 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 including the rise of the war in Vietnam and an increase in road fatalities that hurt the car culture and resulted in Ralph Nader's push for seatbelt laws. White describes the relationships within the band, the relative commercial failure of pet sounds, how the underwhelming reception of the 1970 album Sunflower dictated the course of the 1970s, and Dr. Eugene Landy's involvement with the band. The reader gets a swelling, dramatic feeling as White draws this substantial book to a close, and it's a fascinating thing to contemplate in the study of people like the Beach Boys and Elvis Presley, for example. For all the joy they gave to millions, they acquired little of it for themselves. For a unique study of the whole of Southern California culture, as seen through the music of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, look no further, well, look nowhere else than Timothy White's book. So to wrap up, I can highly recommend The Nearest Faraway Place by Timothy White. You can find plenty of copies for sale at A Books. If you'd like to read the full review of this book, you can head over to my website. I'd like to thank Coop Cooper and Cocktail Nation. Once again, this is Gary Wells from SoulRideBlog.com, and I'm encouraging you to pick up a book. Words with Wellze. Cocktail Nation. been one, two, three, four, five days, six hours, and 
13 minutes since you left me, since you hurt me, since you said we're through. It's been five days, six hours and 13 minutes since we parted, since you started loving someone new. I am alone by myself while the clock on the shelf goes tick tock tick tock ticking the time away it's been five days six hours and 13 minutes since you left me since you hurt me since i cried for you
become an expert with guns. Cocktail Nation. With knives. Coop Cooper. With his bare hands. in the sky so I can see her as she's passing by she's the only girl for me in this big bad galaxy if you see her passing by tell her I'm find a rocket number 95 she smiles takes a Baby's Jack She says, Daddy, can you find a son? The rise is slow, so the morning will come She's the only girl for me In this big bad galaxy If you see her passing by Tell her I'm find a rocket number 95 Show Rocket 95 also played Baby Grand with Lazy Day in Saint Tropez. You know, if you've got some new music coming uh, out, I'd love to hear from you. In fact, uh, anything that you might be doing, new book, perhaps, uh, let me know about it. We can get you on the show. Let's take a look at Lounge Life magazine. James Bond creator Ian Fleming has uh, taken aim at female drivers. This is an old article, of course, in his uh, special Guide to Life. Uh, Viva Las Vegas, Elvis and Anne Margaret's real-life set misbehavior that made the final cut. And promotion pioneer, you might not have heard of this fellow, but he lived a very interesting life. His name is Don Graham, and uh, he started his lengthy career in the early days of Warner Brothers Records. Uh, and he was also part of uh, United Artists, uh, A&M, uh, Blue Thumb. He died just last week at the age of 87. Now, his entry into the music business was rather 
accidental. The age of 16, as the uh, the VP of the student body in high school, one of his duties was getting the entertainment for assemblies. So saddled with the princely budget of $85 for the entire year, Graham and a friend snuck into San Francisco's Blackhawk nightclub where the fantasy record label was based at the time. And it turned out that jazz legend Dave Brubeck was appearing with his quartet that night. So Graham approached Brubeck and somehow managed to convince him to play at his high school for the $85 fee, which Brubeck donated to charity. Pretty amazing stuff, and clearly had the, uh, the goods to have an amazing career. Now, in 1962, he moved to Los Angeles, joined A&M Records as the label's first ever national promotion manager, Working for Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss three years later, he left A&M for Blue Thumb Records with a roster that included Tina Turner, uh, Dave Mason, Sergio Mendez. In 1968, he moved to United Artists and enjoyed success with Bobby Goldsborough, Johnny Rivers and Don McLean, just to name a few. Pretty amazing character, that's for sure. And the interesting thing about record promotions back in the day was that these guys were really, really heavily involved in all aspects of the music industry. And they'd regularly visit radio stations as well. In fact, I remember, it's probably 2003, this kind of ground to a bit of a, a hold. I was working at a radio station in Victoria, and as a music director of the radio station, you often had record reps come down to, to visit to promote the albums that were hot at the time, and they'd often send you to see showcases, Sometimes you got to know them really, really well. Then all of that basically ended once email became more and more common. And after that, they basically would just spam you with albums that they wanted promoted. That was it. There was no contact. They, they wouldn't even pick up the phone. Whereas back in the day, sometimes you would dodge in their phone calls because they would constantly call you. You'd be at lunch and there'd be some guy from Virgin Records or something on the phone wanting to talk to you and you just couldn't get away from these guys. But it all basically ended and now they just spam you. Pretty amazing. On the cocktail nation, deep. If you lose one shoe, you've practically lost yourself two shoes. Very deep. Cocktail nation.
Cocktail Nation. Cocktail Nation. Lotario DJ Cocopa Cocktail Nation
Cocktail Nation, Angelo, Battle of Menti Dame with Freshly Squeezed. Also played Art Van Damme, Love a Comeback to Me, and La Metropole Orchestra with the OSS 117 theme. Now, I came across something very, very interesting. I was, I was watching a, a Netflix special all about some of the, the great movie producers of the 20th century. And it was called, actually called uh, Five Came Back. It was really quite fascinating. But what was interesting to me, <laughs> besides these guys' amazing film techniques and how they crafted them out on the, uh, out on the, the war field, was that all of these guys were old men and they got drafted to the army. And I thought, how, how would that be the case? Particularly with all the things that are going on right now, concerns around China, concerns around Russia, all these things that sort of get everybody worried. Are we going to have another war? We're going to have a third world war. And I've always thought that in your 40s, you're, you're pretty right. You, you're not going to go to war. The war is for you know 18-year-old kids, 19-year-old kids, 21-year-old kids. And then I read about a thing called the old man draft. And I went, oh, so it is possible. So basically, in 1942, in the United States, and this became common across all of the world, many countries introduced a version of the old man draft. So what they would do is that they would call your number and then you'd have to go and submit basically a, like a several page exam as to what your particular skills are as a potential older soldier. And then they would put you to work in whatever expertise you might happen to have. Now you wouldn't necessarily be out on the battlefield, but you, you could be in the thick of it potentially, but you were certainly providing some support to the young warriors that were out there. And I thought to myself, wonder what I'd do. I'm, I'm hoping if that was the case, maybe I'd be a little bit like Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam and, and do like Armed Forces Radio. It's probably the best scenario, I guess, isn't it? Anyway, it, it concerned me. I thought, just when I thought I was out of that possibility. Some new music for you right now. Tiki Delights now. Twist of Lyman on the Cocktonation. Maybe I'd look good in a uniform.
Twitter handle, Cocktail Nation. Follow the lounge leader today. Cocktail Nation. Tell me his name again. Cooper. Lounge Lothario DJ.
Legislator Kip Kibble with you for the Cocktail Nation official website, cocktailnation.net, and you can connect with us via social media through the links on the website here in the Sydney Penthouse. There is an air about her, something so square about her, that makes you care about her more than you should. First that funny feeling, then the warm comes on A dull familiar lull before the storm comes on The inconceivable becomes achievable It's unbelievable what you can do When that funny feeling touches you And she has got that funny feeling too That funny feeling that puts such demands on you Better never It's unbelievable what you can do Once that funny feeling touches you This is the Cocktail Nation.
Cocktail Nation.
Cocktail Nation, buddy, call it there, Herbie's buddy. Next week on the show, Spy Vibe with Jason White, and going to leave you with Billow and Group and Seduction. Stay hip. Mm-hmm.